Okay, can we talk about love and death together? There's just so much about death that is a mystery. And yes, of course, love exists everywhere, wherever there are people. There is love. Love is an instinct, really. The opposite of love isn't hate. The opposite of love is becoming separate from. This is Come and Listen, Jewish Food for Thought. My name is Alyssa Kapnick. And I'm Hannah Kapnick. Today we're talking about love and death. And it isn't a coincidence that we've stuck the two together. From the moment we human beings begin questioning love or death, we never really stop. The unity of love and the separation of death. You could say that both drive us to be better. We yearn most for love and fear most death. And the reality of having our hearts broken or losing a loved one connects us allows us to be human in a way that we hadn't known before. The idea here is not to solve the great mysteries of love or death, but to enrich the conversation. This is a museum for your ears. Our survival as humans is linked to seeking love and avoiding death. Alyssa and I came to this discussion through a deceptively simple phrase in Song of Songs, a text in the Hebrew Bible. Song of Songs is an exchange between lovers understood by the rabbis of the Talmud, the Oral Torah, to be a love poem between God and the Jewish people. In Song of Songs, it says, Ki azah ahava, which means literally, for powerful as death is love. Love is either the urge or the sensation of being united with someone. This is philosophy teacher Bruce Heitler. Other side of that coin, of being united is being separated from everyone else or from everything else. And those two things always come together. And it's indicated by the Hebrew word yachad, which means both together and separate. Love is the sensation of being united. Bruce goes on to say that death is the ultimate separation. We are constantly coming together and separating. We experience our first separation at birth separation from our mothers. And from then on, we learn new ways to separate and unite. And sometimes being united with one person, truly loving, means separating ourselves from the rest of the world. I think we have a tendency, at least in some pockets of our culture, to think of love as primarily and perhaps exclusively about a feeling, so that love is the kind of thing you can fall in and out of 15 times in the course of a day. This is Rabbi Shai Held, Dean of Machon Hadar, an egalitarian yeshiva in New York City. And love is a much more sort of fundamental commitment than that. You might even say, I love this person whether I love them at this minute or not. There's a whole spectrum of things that we call love. Love for a romantic partner, love for a parent, for a child, for a pet, for your job or profession. We are commanded to love your neighbor and the stranger within your gates, but never commanded to love parents. We are commanded to fear and respect parents, perhaps because loving parents is, by and large, intuitive. So the love that you have for your mother or for a long-time husband and wife is a kind of an identity, this is what I am, this is part of me, whereas the, the attraction love, falling in love in the Western paradigm is kind of, this is what I want to be part of. I can understand that loving one's mother is a kind of identity. It's something we're born into. 
but it's also an identity for a parent. Here is Rachel Zucker. Um, I'm a poet. I'm a mother of three boys. I teach poetry and writing at New York University, and I'm also a certified doula. I would say that all three of my children have taught me something completely different and have expanded and changed my understanding of love. It's so obvious to say it, but it, I guess, bears repeating that it's this deeply spiritual, literal, figurative, physical, emotional, psychological transformation. And, you know, you just become a different person, I think. There's even a neurological transformation. For women, as they give birth, their brains release the bonding hormone, oxytocin. This is the hormone released during orgasm, contractions, and which causes milk to be let down for breastfeeding. The sensational delight of falling in love with someone, that's also oxytocin in your brain. So we fall in love with our children in the same way that we fall in love with our romantic partners? Just much, much more intensely. And you're in this weird liminal space where you're two people and then you're one person, but you have this other person that you are more connected to than you could ever have imagined being. And you're responsible for this person and you deeply love this person. You also almost always resent this person. And Particularly for women, bearing children is a way of teaching us that as parents, you no longer exist just for yourself. Parenthood necessitates giving, often without reciprocity. There's a tradition that the relationship between the Jewish people and God evolved from God as a parent figure to God as a lover. And yet, it's totally unclear to what extent this relationship is mutual, what it means to give to God, care for God, to be compassionate toward God. And it's also unclear what it means for God to do those things for us. The ancient Greeks had examples of gods falling in love with humans and humans falling in love with gods. It wasn't some abstract idea that a human could love a god. It was about lust and desire and the physical aspect of love as much as the emotional. It's not clear whether or not the Greeks believed that these things were actually happening, but in Greek mythology they had accounts of human beings falling in love with gods and gods falling in love with human beings. And it wasn't this abstract idea of loving God. It was a physical, emotional entanglement between the god and the human. It was frequently infatuation, desire, jealousy. Aphrodite had many lovers, including the mortal Anchises. And Eos, the dawn goddess, fell in love with Tithonus, a human being. So how do we reconcile that the Torah instructs us to love God, but God isn't tangible and doesn't have human form? There's actually a quick allusion in Genesis to heavenly beings, or literally, sons of God, falling in love with the daughters of man. God so dislikes this physical relationship that God wipes out everyone but Noah and his family with the flood. So that idea of the romantic relationship between heavenly and earthly beings is not totally foreign to Judaism, but it's clearly not approved of. The Torah mandates that Jews love God with all of our heart and all of our soul. What does that look like? Rav Shai presents the idea that love for God is largely about commitment. Judaism's notion of love is ultimately covenantal, which means that it's not about a particular moment, but about an enduring commitment. I guess you could say one of Judaism's extremely powerful contributions to what it means to love God is to claim that to love God without loving the neighbor is not love. If you love God but hate people, you don't love God. 
So we're required to love other people. As Jews, we're born or convert into a contract that obligates us to love. Someone once said to me that tennis was invented as a game of love. But there's something really wonderful about that image. Because what you see is that even though you're, uh, you, you try in tennis to defeat your opponent, and sometimes with great intensity and trickery and whatever, delight in overcoming the other and, and disappointment when you're overcome by the other. But at another level, there is no game of tennis unless two people are playing with each other. So that the, the ability to create a game of tennis means that you're cooperating, that you're both enjoying the same activity, that you're obeying the same rules. So you've created a higher world that, you, that you're engaged with together, even though you're apart from each other. So I think that's in some ways the, the, the nature of a more sophisticated love. Judaism does this very interesting thing where it says, Kabbalah says that God is mitztamtzim, God contracts into God's self to make space for others. And yet at the same time it also says, imo anochi that God is with us in our suffering. And the notion of being present while making space is such an incredible description of what it means to be in a relationship and what it means to love someone. To be totally present without making space is actually to make it all about yourself and thereby not to be present at all. And just to make space without being present is basically abandonment and not making space. And so what God does and what that elicits from us, ideally, is the aspiration to make space while being present and be present while making space. Just as good a definition of love as I can actually imagine. Shai and Bruce both talk about loving relationships as the product of two people committed to enduring love. Franz Rosenzweig, a 20th century German-Jewish philosopher, believed that God's love isn't enduring. God's love, according to Rosenzweig, happens every moment, like each individual point in a line, leading to infinity. The line doesn't end, God doesn't stop loving, but loves now, in this moment, forever. This is Professor Jeffrey Claussen speaking on Rosenzweig. Uh, so my name is Jeffrey Clausen. I am moving into a new position beginning this summer as a professor of religious studies at Elon University in North Carolina. Rosenzweig opened his central work, The Star of Redemption, with an introduction that forced readers to encounter the reality of death. He announced to readers, you are going to die. He reminds readers of the anguish of death, and he castigates philosophers for avoiding that reality for avoiding death and not confronting their own mortality. The illusion of philosophers, as Rosenzweig sees it, is that everything can be thought, can be contained in the mind, can be made sense of. And Rosenzweig says, no, death, death cannot be grasped. Death is transcendent. Rosenzweig was determined to be a different kind of philosopher, to be a philosopher who took death seriously and who wouldn't try to speak from some perch outside of time in a, a world where death doesn't exist, but who would confront the experience of being a human being within time, within the world. For Rosenzweig, consciousness of death works in tandem with consciousness of love. Rosenzweig directly references the phrase from Song of Songs, love is strong as death. He says that awareness of death forces you to move beyond your ego, to face your limits. 
Love also forces you to move beyond your ego and to sublimate your limits. And there is a move there from death as the ultimate transcendence to a vision of love as the ultimate transcendence. If love is the ultimate transcendence, love, even more than death, is the thing that most brings us beyond the material world. Back to Shai Held. The Talmud's insistence that we should imagine that tomorrow is the day we're going to die and what it means to orient our lives around that assumption in a way that is energizing and enlivening rather than paralyzing is, I think, a very powerful goad to loving now. I think it's the reality of death that makes us realize the urgency of love. Lukasz Pribyl is a Czechoslovakian filmmaker who became fascinated by the obscure camps where his grandfather had been imprisoned during the Holocaust. Most people know about the big concentration camps, Auschwitz, Theresienstadt, Dachau, but between 1933 and 1945, Nazi Germany established some 20,000 concentration camps throughout Europe. Lukasz traveled to 20 different countries and spoke to tens of thousands of people in order to find and meet with the 70 or so remaining Jewish survivors of the small camps where his grandfather had been held. At the end of 10 years, Lukasz had collected hundreds of hours of film, and he cut it down to a four-part series called Forgotten Transports. He spoke to us about his experience meeting with the survivors. You know, people even in the most atrocious conditions live like people. And uh, that's what keeps you alive, is, is the, the, the normal things. And love is an instinct, really. It exists everywhere. I, I fly a lot, and whenever I take an airplane and we are landing and you look out of the windows on the tarmac, you always see this in the sea of concrete. There's always a little flower or dandelion like making its way through one of the cracks. And this is like life in concentration camps. It somehow always finds the crack to, to grow through. Lukash gave an example of this love coming through cracks in describing a couple in one of the camps. The woman was 25 years old and the boy was only 16. The boy's mother insisted that this was inappropriate, while others supported their relationship in the face of such destruction. It might seem that because people were surrounded by death in these camps, that they were constantly thinking about death, or desperately trying to avoid thinking about it. Of course they spoke about death because it was rather omnipresent there, but it was part of life there. If you are in a situation for an extended period of time, you start to take it for what it is. It stops being something out of the ordinary. It's, it's part of reality that surrounds you and you have to cope with it. The chance of dying was extremely high there. You wanted to avoid it, but you knew that sometimes you cannot. Lukash said that he believes love knows no bounds. Sometimes Jews and Nazis fell in love with each other. It wasn't very common, but it happened sometimes. To Estonia, one part of the four-part film series, Forgotten Transports, recounts the journey of several Jewish women who were transported together to different concentration camps during the war. In 1943, the women were transferred to a camp in Areda, northeastern Estonia. Among the women in the transport was Inga Silton, a young, beautiful blonde. Upon arrival in Areda, Inga met Heinz, an SS commandant in the camp. Before the women had arrived, Heinz had been notoriously cruel. He was an animal, they said, and everyone was terrified of him. 
Only Inga had made a human being out of Heinz. Clips from two Estonia. When Inga came, that, uh, there was a drastic change in his behavior. And she definitely had a tremendous influence on him. At roll call one morning in the camp, everyone was there, and Heinz held a whip he'd been using. Inga told Heinz in front of everyone to put the whip away. He refused, and so she took it from him and kept it. She stayed with him. And I told her, Inge, I don't think that is a good idea. You, I, I think that is not a smart. Ah, da, 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 da. She, she was very young. And I guess under the circumstances, being in love and had a better life, of course, being with him made her, you know, turned her head. I mean, uh, it was like uh, they forgot where they are. Eventually, they ran away together and made great attempts to help other Jews escape as well. Weeks after their escape from the camp, Heinz and Inga were found and shot by SS officers. My grandfather used to have a saying, if it's not a matter of life and death, it's not worth a shit. Selections from Rachel Zucker's poem... Long Lines to Stave Off Suicide. It begins with an epigraph from Carolyn Forche, One Can Live Without Having Survived. Or, I Could Keep Having Children, which helps a little, hurts a lot, because everything for a long time is so keep the baby alive. Or I could keep more to myself, gathering daily facts inwards, in towards, but this makes for less interior space. If the line's too short, drown. Too long, I'm not the first to be beguiled by and not the first to feel there's something hang I've swallowed that won't go down. On Thursday at pre-K, I make pancakes with Abram's class, and he asks Ami, and the teacher chose Luna, and Derek cried and cried, and I let him measure flour because he kept saying, that's your mom? Your mom? I love your mom. It was weird. So I gave him butter and a blunt knife, hoped the teacher wouldn't mind, and later found out Derek's mom died in the towers. I couldn't breathe when I heard it or believe what a good mother I've been just by staying alive. Do you think, Joan asks, it's better to die now or back when they were babies and didn't know better? I almost say better to have died when they were babies, but not true. Every good night book, spoon of pureed pear, banana after brush your teeth time, how I held him, restrained in a hospital sheet, while the idiot doctor who didn't want to dirty his dress shirt stitched the busted lip. And when I weaned him off the binky and the boob and the floaties, and from biting and kicking and unbuttoning my shirt in public, and from climbing out of the crib and from standing up on the subway without holding on, better, I say, to die now. Or when he reaches an age... What age? And I find I can finally swallow it down. Will I? Loosen? Any moment it could stop, suddenly stop. Short, I must hold on. 
Escorting the dead, the process of attending to the body in preparation for and through burial, is one of a set of deeds for which the Talmud teaches that a person both eats the fruit of their work in this world and in the world to come. Nearly everywhere that there's a Jewish population, there's a group of volunteers called the Hevra Kadisha. This group cleans and dresses the body of the deceased in preparation for burial. We called up Sari Horovitz, a former member of the Women's Hevra Kadisha in Denver, Colorado. My name is Sari Horovitz. I live in Denver, Colorado. I really got involved before I even had children. At that point, there were no young women doing it at all. I was in my 30s, and everyone else was probably in their 60s at least. There was a person in the community who I really admired. Her name was Jane Wolfe. She did Taharas, and she was a teacher for me in other ways too. She was this short, elderly German lady, and I think that I felt that I could do it. I felt that being around a dead body was a place that I could handle. This is fascinating to me. Sari never said it's something she wanted to do. She engaged this holy and challenging work largely because not everyone feels capable of caring for a dead body. So what is Tahara? Tahara is a ritual washing of a dead person, of a body. It is, of course, to clean the body as if immersing it. Part of the Tahara is washing the body with a specific measurement of water, almost as if the body is being immersed in a ritual bath, or mikveh. The whole idea of a mikveh is that it's a transformational space. So the members of the Hever Kadisha start that transformation by washing the body, one side at a time. The right side is done before the left side. And that, again, is likely the, the recognition that because the right side of our body is about chesed, is about loving kindness, we always begin with chesed. So when we're washing a body, so we also always begin with chesed. So the right hand is washed before the left hand, right leg before the left leg, that kind of thing. So when the tahara is done, when the washing is done, then we take three buckets of water, one right after another. So while one person starts pouring up here, then another person immediately picks up the next bucket. The last tahara I did was for a friend's little girl. The little girl had been ill and we knew that she was going to die and I actually had ordered her shroud. I, I told my friend that I would do this for her. So I ordered the shroud and the shroud stayed under my bed for a long time until, until the little girl died. And I trained another woman who also wanted to do it. It was a gift that we wanted to give our friend. And we went up to her house. She lived up in the mountains. I trained my friend how to do it and we practiced on a little doll. We did it outside because she was going to be buried that afternoon. Um, it actually started sprinkling. And, and my friend said, this is like a tahara from God. Like any cycle, you need to have both life and death to have the cycle continue and to have a system that can sustain itself. What is it that taps into eternity in some way that death can't touch? The claim is that love is that. Contemplating death and the finiteness of being alive is what enriches and gives meaning and gives structure, purpose and intensity and vibrancy to being alive. 
Love is as powerful as death. Love and death both generate urgency to connect to those around us. They collapse and expand the space between us. These are our two greatest tools to transcendence. Love is about making and keeping promises between two people or between a person and God. And love is central to survival. It rises out of the cracks in cement. Out of desolation often comes the optimism of human connection. You could say that death pushes us toward a rich life, toward loving other people, because love is as great as death, and nothing else is. Come and Listen is brought to you with support from the Tikva Venture Fund, the Bronfman Youth Fellowships in Israel Alumni Venture Fund, and the Meisel Museum. Thanks to Jeffrey Claussen, Bruce Heitler, Shai Held, Sari Horovitz, Lukash Pribble, and Rachel Zucker. Thanks also to Adam Hirsch, Joan Wallach, Yehoshua Hoffman, Caleb Dance, Annie Geimer, Yonia Shar, Noah Silver, Mark Mann at denvelopers.com, Andy Hamilton, the faculty at Mahon Hadar, and to our friends and family. Check us out on our website, www.comeandlisten.com, where you can listen to all of our episodes and short episodes, respond to what you hear, and support this project. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Your hosts are Hannah Kapnick and Alyssa Kapnick. Ha, 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 ha.